This week on Three Questions with Corey Kareem. She said, you are not okay. And the things that you are experiencing are reflective of the trauma that you survived. And you don't have to pretend like you're all right. Mm. This reaction is normal. And it gave me permission to say, okay, I am not okay. And I need help. And I need support. And I need to say no. And I need to let people know I'm not functional. And that's why I say I, I stopped being dishonest. I stopped pretending like I was going to be okay and that I could get better on my own because I couldn't. Now, before we get started with this beautiful conversation, please help a brother out. And click on that follow button on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem, the podcast where we sit down with some amazing people who are doing some amazing things. And that's right. You guessed it. We asked them three questions, sometimes four, sometimes five, six, seven. I know. I know. I know. I, I read the comments. I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. I'm listening. Listening. But... Rather than talk about people's wins or successes, uh, we tend to talk about their failures, more specifically the lessons they learn from those individual experiences. So uh, with that being said, uh, my guest today is a content strategist, copywriter, and ghostwriter who has dedicated her career to helping brilliant people package their brightest ideas in words. Those are ours. You can tell she probably wrote that. <laughs> She's the founder of Word Count Creative, a boutique content agency servicing mission-driven businesses, executives, and thought leaders. When not penning content for clients, she writes about the intersection of Black womanhood, mental health, self-care, and social justice. So without further ado, Talia Leacock. Hello, hello. To the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so, Talia, I, I know that I just pretty much read a, a synopsis of your bio yes. um, there, but for my listeners, for my audience, um, why don't you give them a little bit more of an elevator pitch about who you are and, and what you do, and more importantly, your inspo to get into the line of work that you do currently? Okay. So I am what I affectionately call a word nerd. Um, mm. Words are my magic, whether it's writing them, editing them, um, you know, just turning ideas into words that are able to connect with audiences. And this is something that I have been passionate about since I was a child. I have always loved reading. I've loved words. I started reading really early. I was three. Um, and I just knew I wanted to do something that would allow me to sort of put that magic back into the world. So I got into the space of mission-driven businesses, executives, thought leaders, that kind of space, because I know that there are so many brilliant people out there who are amazing at what they do. And writing is just not on the list of skills they have, or it's just not something they have time to cultivate because, you know, they're busy being brilliant elsewhere. Mm. So I see myself as a tool in their toolbox that allows them to maximize their impact by conveying their ideas to their audiences in ways that people are going to connect to. I like to think of myself as a chameleon. So however you talk, write, speak, that is what I will be for you. Um, I have clients say things like, oh, you live in my head. And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm in the penthouse. 
I am going to get in there and I'm going to get comfortable because I want that when you give me an idea, I'm able to spit it back out as something that you would be proud to put out into the world. So I like to think I'm people's little secret weapon, your little mm. word warrior, if you will. Word warrior. Mm-hmm. Got it. I like it. Your Thank word you. warrior. Mm-hmm. Okay. How many books a month do you read? I'm curious. Um, Not as many as I would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am a victim of the attention span shrinking. <laughs> so on that. yeah, it, it's, it's not consistent. Some months it's none and some months it's like four at one time because I found four that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I go back and forth. I love fiction. I really, really love fiction. I love poetry and I love self-help. So gotcha. I usually have one or all three of those on the go. At any yeah, po- poetry. I used to be a little poet in my day, you know. Okay. I wrote, I wrote some love letters, some pretty good ones, you know, <laughs> we'll more than the roses are red, violets and blue, you know. I got my Tupac bag, you know, like I oh. I, I, I used Hello, to, Jones. you know, you know. <laughs> uh, but Tilia, you know, so usually when I have a guest on, uh, we usually start from a career perspective and we talk about how they got to the position or how they got to the level of success that they have right now. We talk about those those failures, those struggles and the lessons that they learn. But with you, I want to take a slightly different approach because um with you, you know, one of the things that I've come to know you for is your thoughtfulness and insightfulness when it comes to relationships, marriage, gender roles, and overall the dynamic between men and women. So that's kind of my way of saying I recognize that you have a unique and valuable perspective that I feel that a lot of people can learn from and grow from. I appreciate so it. that's where I'd like to kind of focus today's conversation. I'm, I'm setting it up that way, right? Sounds good. Um, so uh, with that being said, Talia, mm-hmm. tell me about the most challenging time in your life or one of the most challenging times. What happened? How'd you get through it? And most importantly, what did you learn from it? Okay. So we're going to go back to 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I had a full-time job at an emergency response call center. Mm-hmm. And it was as fun as it sounds. <laughs> it was a very high-stress job, very low-paying job. We were always understaffed. And you know, every decision you made could impact someone's well-being. It could literally be life or death. So mm-hmm. let's put that as sort of the backdrop of my life at the time. Okay. Um, in addition to that, I was living on my own for the very first time. So I had been living with my partner and then he joined the military and he was away for training. And it was the first time that I was solely taking care of all of the adult responsibilities of life. And it was a little bit of a shock. It was like being thrown into the deep end. On top of that, I had some childhood trauma stuff that was sort of surfacing and that I hadn't done enough healing around so that all of this is sort of percolating. And Mm -hmm. then it's February, it's freezing. The sun hasn't Mm -hmm. been out for weeks. It was just the perfect storm. And I went into work one morning, started a bright early 8 a.m. Sunday morning shift. And the first call was a disaster. Mm -hmm. And I just, I lost it. Like I fell apart on the call. I was not professional. Um, I ended up in tears. It was just a nightmare. Um, I I think of it essentially as a bit of a nervous breakdown because that's how it felt in that moment. And I remember my manager called me into her office and she said, okay, what is happening? Because this is not, this is not you, you know, you show up to work and you're exemplary. Something is wrong. 
And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm just really stressed out. And she told me to take a week off. And as that week was coming to an end, I remember just this feeling of absolute dread. Like the thought of going back into that job was making me physically ill. Like my stomach was hurting. My head was hurting. I couldn't get out of bed. And so I said, okay, something, I have to figure out what to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point I went to my family doctor and he said, um, you might have some mental health stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to suggest that you see a psychologist and maybe take some more time off. And so I did see a psychologist. Fun fact, they are not like therapists. You know, therapists are kind and personable and empathetic. Mm-hmm. Psychologists are doctors. They deal with the illness and not the person. And so I got my diagnoses and I have a fun little cocktail of generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, and in the long run, it has been so helpful to know that that's what I'm dealing with. But in that moment, it just felt like somebody looked at me and said, you're broken. Everything is wrong with you. Mm. And it was like getting that information gave me permission to collapse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I just, I really fell apart and I sort of fell into a really, really deep depression. Um, And it was the first time that I sort of wrangled with the fact that all of these things I thought were just me struggling were actually like debilitating illnesses. Um, So much so to the point that I ended up on short-term disability from my job for nine months. Wow. I remember coming back to work and people were like, did you have a baby? I was like, mm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it that is one of the lowest points of my life because it was this moment of acknowledgement that I mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily equipped or supported to navigate. Um, how I got through that. So I stopped being dishonest. And let me Hmm. clarify what I mean by that. So even as I was in the midst of this depression on short-term disability, not working at my nine to five, I was building sort of the foundation of my career as a ghostwriter and copywriter. And so I was showing up to meetings, dressed to the nines, charming clients, closing deals. And then I was going home and collapsing in on myself. I would go days without showering. I wasn't eating. I was either sleeping all the time or not sleeping at all. I literally wanted to die. And I was experiencing what they call gray suicidality. So it's not like an active urge to harm yourself. But if something were to happen to you, you're not doing anything about it. Mm. Um, There was a point where I was living on camp marshmallows, you know, those big fat Mm. marshmallows you use at at campfires. Oh, got you. Yeah. yeah. That's all I could eat. That's not food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And in my mind, I was like, yo, but it's fine because you need, you function when you need to, you show up and you get stuff done when you need to. So you're fine. Listening to that now, that sounds insane. There's nothing fine about what I was experiencing. Um, But I was fortunate to get referred to a therapist who was both black and a woman. And I am a huge advocate for seeing a therapist that looks like you Mm -hmm. because they understand your context. So, you know, Every therapist understands the DSM-5. They know what anxiety and depression and PTSD are. But Mm -hmm. a therapist whose life experiences are reflective of yours will understand the context you're experiencing those things in. And she said, you are not okay. And the things that you are experiencing are reflective of the trauma that you survived. And you don't have to pretend like you're all right. 
this reaction is normal. And it gave me permission to say, okay, I am not okay. And I need help and I need support and I need to say no. And I need to let people know I'm not functional. And that's why I say I, I stopped being dishonest. I stopped pretending like I was going to be okay and that I could get better on my own because I couldn't. My right. my community became the most important thing to me. I have friends who have put me to bed like a baby hmm. because I just could not function like an adult. Wow. Um, and that's how I got better in saying, I'm not okay. I need to do these things in order to get help. You know, therapy gave me coping skills. Like, you know, I did CBT, so I learned like cognitive behavioral therapy. So I learned how mm-hmm. to manage my reactions and responses to situations I was in. You know, I had lots of other coping skills, but I also had this community that just surrounded me and said, it's okay that you're not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've been able to sort of work my way back to a version of myself that's able to manage. Right. And thank you, first of all, for sharing that. Um, wow. So much there to unpack for a second. So my first question for you, Talia, how did you know to go to a psychologist first versus a therapist? Or was that just by fluke? That's the way the medical community typically does it. So because I went through my doctor. Mm. Um, they would refer me to a psychologist first because their idea is that you understand what the disease is before you try to treat it. Right. So psychologists and psychiatrists are the only ones who can diagnose. Therapists are there to provide the treatment. Right. And based on your experience through your journey, is it more like one was more helpful than the other? Or would you say both kind of play their roles equally? I think both played an important role. Diagnosis Mm -hmm. has been really critical to uh, getting the right care. Mm -hmm. I think therapy has been by and far the most important care that I've sought Mm. um, and the most sort of long-term support I've had. So I've been seeing my therapist, my current therapist since 2017. Right. That has been absolutely life-changing. And it's different because it's holistic. So, like I said, psychology is is medical. It's very clinical. Mm. It's very matter of fact. But mental illness is not matter of fact. It doesn't exist mm. in the vacuum of of sort of diagnosis. There's all of the context of your life, who you are, what you're dealing with, what you're going through, how the world reacts to you. And so, therapy has sort of equips me to navigate what psychology diagnosed. Right. And, and what I find so interesting, I I came across. Uh, a podcast I'm a big fan of. It's called Diary of a CEO. Mm. And he interviews people like just like how I interview. And on this particular episode, he had one of the world's leading I don't I don't know what his medical title is, but I know that he studies the human brain. Mm. Right? So much he's so fascinated and in love with what he does. He mentioned in a very funny way that um, when he started dating again, and mind you, this guy's like in his mid fifties, the woman that he sought after, you know, after a couple of days, he's like, I want to see what your brain looks like. Not like underneath the knife, but like, you know, the, 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 the uh, I guess it's like an MRI scan or something like that. Because where he was going is a lot of the issues that we kind of put towards Oh, 
he's just a bad person because he's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, it, we never go as far as the brain when we're diagnosing people. And he's like, if you take, if we took that one extra step and understanding there's a cost to that. And there's probably a, a, a huge financial reason why it's not a part of our standard medical practice. But he was basically saying, if we went as far as including that in the regular diagnosis process, when something's wrong with somebody, we would discover that there's actually something happening up here mm-hmm. that most likely can be adjusted. So that's what he was saying. Like he was giving examples of like his brother that didn't want to do this and didn't want to do that. And everyone just thought like, you know, it was just this, but they found out, oh, they had this in their brain or whatever it was. And so that's what made that, that's what I find so interesting about you having to see a psychologist for someone that has, you know, um, a medical degree versus just going the therapist route. Because I think over the last maybe 10 years or so, therapists have, there's been a huge boom. Absolutely. But now me hearing your experience makes me think how many of us are not really doing it holistically. We've we just kind of like jumped to the therapist step and we haven't gone the psychologist route or psychiatrist route when we might need that, but we if just don't know. I'm a good therapist, right? Yeah. Your therapist is not able to diagnose, but they are able to recognize. Mm-hmm. Right? Say, this sounds like, or these seems like symptoms of, mm-hmm. and then a good therapist will say, you should see a psychologist. Because again, therapy treats what you're diagnosed with. So when mm-hmm. you get that diagnosis, they know what ther- kind of therapies to use. Like, for example, somebody who has bipolar will use a different kind of therapy than I use because it's a different disease. Right. Right. But, and I use that word disease really intentionally because people don't realize mental health, like mental illnesses are diseases. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't on short term disability because I was scamming the system, I was disabled. Right. You know, these are diseases of the mind, which is why, you know, it's fascinating that 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 doctor said he went and he scanned his love interest. Mind. I get it. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds insane. But if you don't know what you're dealing with, right, it's going to show up in ways, you know, people are like, oh, they're just so angry or that person's so exactly um, agitated or they're so argumentative. Like maybe right. something's not plugged right. in quite right up there. And right. You know, I used to be a very agitated person. I, I thought, you know, it was so interesting that you used the words, oh, he's just a bad person, because I used to think, oh, you're always so short tempered. You're always so angry. You're just a bad person. Uh-huh. Anger and agitation are symptoms of depression. Mm. I wasn't a bad person. I had an unmanaged illness. Right. And when I learned how to manage the illness, I learned how to manage the anger. You know, but a lot of the things that we think of as characteristic of a person are symptoms of larger issues. Right. And so my last question on this particular note, how should someone know to take that necessary step where where they feel like, you know what, something isn't right with me? How do, are they like certain symptoms? You just called out one, but are there, is there a checklist of certain symptoms where someone who's sitting at home right now listening to this, where like, oh, that sounds very familiar. What are those additional kind of, you know, um, signs that someone should be like, I think I should get this medically checked out? So I'll speak specifically to depression and anxiety because those are the ones I'm most familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when it feels like your mind is in control of you instead of the other way around, Mm -hmm. when you are having reactions that you did not choose and you feel like you cannot choose differently. So you're getting angry when you feel like you shouldn't be angry or you're Mm -hmm. sad when you feel like there's nothing to be sad about. Um, Or, you know, you're feeling really nervous about things that didn't make you nervous before you're losing interest in things that made you excited before. So this is a, this is a checklist um, that my doctor used to give me every visit when I was first being processed for depression, because these are sort of indicators, you know, you're suddenly not eating or you're eating all the time, not Mm. sleeping or sleeping all the time. So if you're seeing these sort of major shifts in your behavior and your mood, that might be an indication of a mood disorder. Um, And it's worth checking out. And if you check it out and you find out you're not disordered, then great. You know, you can sort of explore other options, right. but it's worth finding out just in case. Right. Because if you, you can't fix what you don't know. Right. A hundred percent. And, you know, going back to that doctor that I was trying kind of referencing, mm-hmm. he's, he, his belief is, do you know how many relationships could probably <sighs> have been saved Corey, don't say that. <laughs> had they not, had they taken that step where you just like, oh, she's crazy or he's crazy or, you know what I mean? It's so easy to to jump to what seems to be, you know, the visible answer, but there could be so much more going on. And so, you know, that kind of leads me to my, my next question, right? Um, you were once married and now divorced. Is that the actual well, term or separated? In, separated in the process of divorce. Okay. So would you say, what would you say is your perspective on marriage now? Like, has that changed? What what would you say on that? Well, I'll answer that question in a second, but I want to circle back to what you said about how Mm -hmm. many relationships could be saved if people were getting, that is quite literally one of the problems that happened in my Mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. I had diagnosis, I had treatment, I had everything I needed and my partner did not. Mm. And there were a lot of things that after a relationship ended and he got diagnosed and he started getting treatment that I was like, oh, that's why you were like that, Mm. you know? Um, So, yeah, I absolutely agree. A lot of relationships could be improved, if not saved, Mm. if people were better equipped to understand and care for themselves and then by extension, their partner. Right. Um, But to answer your current question, So I think my perspective on marriage for myself has Mm -hmm. shifted a little bit. Um, You know, people ask me, would I get married again? And if you'd asked me that last year, my instant response was absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, Now it's a little bit more measured where I'm like, you know, every condition would have to be correct. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is sort of like, I think that's a reasonable response. And I say that because if you were cooking Mm -hmm. and your hand hit the pot, and you ended up with a huge burn on your hand, you might be a little tentative about cooking again. Right. Because you got burnt. Mm. That's where I'm at. I still think that marriage is a beautiful thing when it's two people who are stupidly in love with each other and who believe that their lives are improved by being together, make the decision to to commit to that in front of the law and whatever other mm-hmm. thing you might believe in, whether that's God or spirituality or whatnot i think that's a beautiful testament to how we as humans are social creatures and how Mm. we crave connection and how we pursue that so so consistently through our lives 
I think that people should get married if that's what they want to do. I Mm -hmm. don't think they should make that decision lightly because Mm -hmm. when you are getting married to someone and that person really loves you, they're taking their heart and they're saying, here you go. I don't think you should take that from them unless you're sure you're willing to protect it. Mm. I think we live in a culture where marriage is seen as this fun little thing we get to do. We get to have a big party and she gets to wear a white dress and he gets together with his boys and everything is fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's a wedding. The One marriage day. is literally everything that comes after that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't take that lightly because someone is putting their whole self into a situation. You both have to be ready to commit to that. That's why the vows say in sickness and health and for richer and for poorer. It's like, it's everything. And life, mm-hmm. that first year of marriage is always so hard. Every married couple will tell you the first year. It's like, what the hell just happened? Because mm. it's like the universe says, oh, in in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, let's, let's see. Let's test that. Every time. That's so interesting because so much here. Um, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> no, because, you know, it's crazy because, you know, you, you said a couple of things where you say that, you know, both parties shouldn't take that lightly when mm-hmm. you say you want to marry someone. And I always feel like men are very, and more and nine times out of 10 in my lived experience, are usually the last out of the two to be like, okay, I want to do this. Because I think they know, like, how big and serious this is. And it could be something about, you know, the only, the last, those words could get to them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, you, you mentioned something there that really kind of made me think about something else, right? And that is when, let's just take a couple, for example, they've been together for three years. And out of those three years, one of those years they've been already living together before they got officially married. Mm-hmm. And now they tie the knot officially, you know, all of that. And then you could say the universe, because you've made this, you know, public declaration, things shift, even though mm-hmm. you've already been living for one year, but now that you've taken this vow, things shift weirdly. And a friend of mine brought this up to me a while ago and she said it more on the spiritual side. And she's like, there's a, there's a, the way that she kind of put it to me and I'm paraphrasing her, her words and I'm probably going to do a horrible job, (laughs) but she's like, there's like a, another level of unveiling that happens when Mm -hmm. you take those vows that you, you just won't get to if you don't take those vows. And that, and it sounds, it sounded something similar to what you were just saying now. And that's why it's kind of just, triggered that thought for me because from many from so often in our society you hear it's just a piece of paper right but it's actually not Mm -mm. there's there's a there's like a level to it that until you cross it you just you wouldn't understand and so it, it you just made me come to that kind of realization by by you sharing that perspective yeah it's like i lived with my ex for five five and a half years before we mm. got married mm. like we were as close to married legally we were called right. we were as correct. close to married and i don't i don't think that there was a thing i could put my finger on that shifted mm-hmm. but it's like this this psychological effect it's like the walls did this 
Mm. Because before it was like, okay, we're out here and you can leave. You can leave. It suck, but you can mm-hmm. pick up and you can go. Mm-hmm. Now leaving requires you to involve the government of Canada. Mm-hmm. I had to have some random lady show up to my house with papers that she had to see me to hand to me that right. I then had to sign. Like it wasn't like, okay, well, we're done. There's this whole process that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. So even on a like a very like basic physical level, it's just not that simple anymore. And I think for a lot of people, that feeling of the walls closing in gets uncomfortable mm. because now you've promised to stay and you're beholden to that to a certain degree mm-hmm. by this piece of paper that you signed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so what would you say you learned most about yourself throughout this process? Cause you're, you're still going through the process. So what would you say you learned most about yourself in this process? Well, one of the things I learned is that I had a very anxious attachment style. Mm. I was very anxiously attached to a person who was avoidantly attached, mm. which was a perfect nightmare. <laughs> um, and so, you know, people ask what you learn, but I'm so much for me has been, what have I unlearned? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really unlearning this, this anxious attachment style. Maybe, Maybe I've gone too far, perhaps, <laughs> but just sort of trying to get to this point of being most attached to self. Right. Um, you know, in the first year after we separated, I didn't really date. I didn't. I was very much on a journey of self-love. It was my year of selfishness. Right. I, I did everything for me based on what I wanted, how I wanted it. I went where I wanted. I wore what I wanted. And not that I was restricted in my relationship. I don't mean to imply that. Right. That I was with a person who, you know, kind of locked me down in any way. But I had spent so much time trying to prioritize someone else's happiness that I was really unfamiliar with what it meant to prioritize my own. Mm. Um, And so I knew that if I were to get into another relationship, I would want to know that I would never feel like the world was ending because the relationship ended. Right. And that meant feeling very deeply grounded in myself. Mm. So I have spent the last almost three years now, which is crazy to say, but the almost last three years figuring out what I like, what I don't like, what makes me happy, what pisses me off. You know, what does love look like to me? How, how does that show up? You know, mm. how, what other forms of love? Because I'm I'm very aware of the fact that how I show love and how a person I love shows love might be different. Mm-hmm. And so what other forms of love am I willing to accept as um, sufficient? Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's, it's all good and well to say, okay, well, that's how they show love. But if it doesn't fulfill me, then it's not, it's not enough for me. That doesn't mean they're not good enough. It just means that we're not compatible. Hmm. There's a lot there. A lot there. The love languages, a lot of people, they just have fun with that, but there's there's levels to that. For sure. There's For like, I know everyone finds it cute. Yeah, yeah, it's not you cute know, when you, when you dig into it. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a lot of people take that lightly because it's a fun book to read and it's interesting and it can help you to build, but like there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so on that note. 
can romantic love be unconditional in your perspective? It can. I can't tell somebody that they shouldn't or that they don't love somebody unconditionally. Mm-hmm. It can. I don't think it should be. Mm, why not? Because it's unsafe, it's unhealthy, and it's unwise. Mm. And I'll break down why I say each of those things. Conditions are meant to protect. So if I say, I will go outside if it's not hailing, because when it's hailing, I will get hurt. I will go outside when there isn't a tornado, because when there's a tornado, I can, you know, be harmed. Conditions are designed to protect you from something. So as much as we like, we like love and it's wonderful and it's soft and it's you loving someone does not mean they love you. So if you are loving them without conditions and they are harming you, you are now participating in your own harm. Hmm. I think conditions, the conditions you create are there to say, this is what I'm able to do. This is how far I'm able to go before this is not safe for me. And unconditional love, I think, asks you to love somebody more than you love yourself. I don't think that that's something that we should do. Interesting perspective. So let me let me let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Absolutely. So I get that I get that perspective of condition, right? Where it's almost like a physical condition. But what if it's a standard? So I'm going to use a very um, very vain standard. Let's just say, you know, the the person you married was this big, in shape, fit guy. That's one of the things that you liked about them because you take your your body seriously and your body's your temple. You know, that's your mantra. That was your couple mantra together. And then he gains 150 pounds. Right? I'm going to be really extreme, right? 150 pounds. <laughs> That is a condition that changed, mm-hmm. but it's not harmful no. per se, maybe unhealthy to the other person, right? but not harmful to you. And now you're not as attracted to him physically mm-hmm. anymore. Under those type of circumstances, is unconditional love, is that still not the right approach to have? Well... I want to start by saying that there's a massive distinction between love and attraction Mm. that I can be not attracted to you and still love you. Mm -hmm. Now, does unconditional love mean that you stay? Mm. Would you be a little bit of an ass for leaving somebody because they got fat? Mm -hmm. Probably. But if that's your jam, that's your jam. Um, but I don't think that that, that changes whether you love the person, but if attraction is super significant to you, that will impact your decision. Right. And I think where people, this is why this, this topic gets a little bit hairy, if you will, is Mm -hmm. we conflate so many things and, you know, cause you hear that love is an action, right? Mm -hmm. And so one could say, well, if you love them, you would stay with them. Right. But then you can also say, I can love a person from afar. Right. And so I think that's where, you know, people kind of get caught in that dance. And it just makes me wonder, right, this whole conditions, how many people are staying in relationships 
because they just don't want to break that vow. A lot of people. But on the other side, because I always like to look at things from both sides, how many people in the same point don't haven't don't have the emotional maturity to understand what true love is where it's not always about getting your own way where there's about sacrifice and understanding that you might have to give up something like here's a here's a scenario both you guys have great jobs you're one of your partner gets his dream job it requires you guys to move halfway around the world who's going to give up the job Mm -hmm. right so it's such a it's such an interesting thing and you know all sides are valid but i don't think people give enough credence to understanding that if someone says hey i no longer want to do this because this doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve us on one side a person can look at that and being that's selfish Mm -hmm. right then on the other side someone could say no that person's being honest and you said honesty is the best policy so which one is it yeah i think it really depends on on what you value right so Mm. if you are the type of person for whom partnership is the end all and be all then there's nothing you won't sacrifice for it if Mm. you are the type of person for whom joy and fulfillment are the end all and be all as selfish as that might sound i really don't think it's selfish but if joy and fulfillment are your your priorities if the person you're with is no longer or is let me phrase that differently if the person you're with is making decisions that are detrimental to your joy and fulfillment and i use making decisions very intentionally mm-hmm. then you're within your right to say this is no longer allowing me to live a life that i will look back on and be happy about and why i was intentional about saying making choices is because we often tiptoe around the conversation about partners getting sick and mm. there is a very interesting gendered response to a sick partnership so studies have shown that when a male partner gets sick the female partner is more likely to stay and become mm-hmm. a caregiver um i could see that whereas men are more likely to leave the woman um and so that's why i said intentional because i think that it's insane <laughs> mm-hmm. go out on the limb and if anybody wants to be mad they can be mad i think it's insane to say i love this person with all my heart and they are sick and i'm going to abandon them right versus they've taken a job in timbuktu and i don't want to live in timbuktu because nothing is there for me right one is a choice and one is just life dealing you a bad hand life happening and you know and this is why i think i think getting married is too easy mm. I think it should be a little bit more challenging because I I had, I did this, you know, kind of, I kind of made a joke with my friends years ago. I was like, it's harder to get a driver's license. It's harder to get car insurance Mm -hmm. than getting married. And you know what people always say about marriage? It's the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. So if it's the biggest or one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make in your life, I feel like it should be a little bit more challenging to 
get married. And what do that what do I mean? And I understand that people will disagree with that because some people already feel a way about the government being involved in the process. Mm-hmm. I hear you valid perspective, not uh discounting that. But I feel like everyone should like a level of marriage counseling should be mandatory. Mm-hmm. And that counseling isn't just fluff talk. It's like, hey, using the scenario that you were just describing about sickness, if your partner got in a car accident, they became a quadriplegic and you really wanted children. And now that wasn't possible. Are you still in this? Like, I feel like those tough questions, Mm -hmm. as uncomfortable as they are, as, as awkward as that would make the both people feel, I think those things should be like talked about if they haven't been already been talked about, because I don't think a lot of people ask those kind of questions because that is such an extreme thing that does happen unfortunately to some people but such an extreme thing but those are very valid things to discuss and i feel like everyone should go through like a a three-month process of those difficult questions because you might find some answers you might be like you know what i love you but Mm-mm. i actually don't think we make a great team you know because right. there's a flip side to that question if you're if you become a quadriplegic and you know your partner wants children do you expect them to stay right Fair enough we always talk about, you know, the partner in the more advantageous position, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, both people have a decision to make in that moment because right. there are people who say, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to be what you need. I want you to go find somebody else. Right. You know, there are people who are literally like, oh, I'm dying and I'm going to set up a dating profile for you so you can find somebody after I pass. Like, right. there. Is that something you're willing to do? And I'm not saying that that should be the standard or the norm or whatever, but the two people in that conversation should be aligned to a certain degree. Right. And right. I think you're right. Like if you're not having those conversations and most couples don't talk about that, because like no. you said, it's so uncomfortable. Very. What if he says he's going to leave me when I'm sick? Now, I don't want to know that, but you right. do know that. You know what I mean? No, 100%. Now, Talila, recently I, I put up a survey asking my woman followers, if they saw a man they liked, <laughs> would they sit there and wait or would they approach him? Uh-huh. What did you choose and why? I chose I would wait. Why and, is that? And I don't approach men hmm. in real life. In real life. On dating apps, yes. Okay. that's what we're there for. So explain okay. to me the difference. The, 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 the virtual versus real life. What, what? The virtual, we are in a contract of understanding. Mm-hmm. If we are both on Hinge or Tinder or whatever app, we right. are both looking to date. We know that categorically. Mm-hmm. I also have a certain degree of information about you other than just, oh, I like the way you look. Understood. Like, oh, well, you are this old and you live here and you have this religious belief and you smoke or you don't smoke or you have children, you don't have to. Like, I know a lot of information where I'm like, mm, this is worth me asking that question. We are in this sort of social contract of this is what we're here for. If I'm out with my friends mm-hmm. and I know a lot, of, a lot of people are not going to like this reasoning, but it's my reasoning. I am what some people would describe as a lot. So I'm bold, I'm opinionated, I'm going to tell you how I feel. I can be a little bit domineering, I'm bossy. You? Me? (laughs) I am all of these things that can Mm -hmm. be coded as intimidating. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're intimidating. 
to the men I want to date. Understood. I need to know if you are the kind of man who is intimidated. So if I'm in the, the, the bar or the restaurant or whatever venue, and I see you looking at me 800 times, but you never come over, you're not brave enough to talk to me. But when it's time to deal with me being argumentative, when it's time to engage with me and you're used to meek women who back down and I'm not backing down and you actually have to make your point because I don't just listen because you spoke. I have no indication that you're capable of that. Understood. I understand your perspective. I want to. I see the devil just sitting on your shoulder. <laughs> no, no. But here's the thing. Very valid points. I don't disagree with anything that you just said, but I think that's only, we are all multifaceted people. Mm-hmm. And I think to purely judge someone in that bar setting, lounge, whatever the venue is, and say, that guy looked at me three times, he's intimidated, he's not the guy for me. I think that could be a valid assumption, but it could also be absolutely incorrect. Oh, 100%. He could be having a bad day. He could be just not in the mood to talk to people. He could be the kind of man who likes women to approach him first. I don't know what his reasoning is. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that that is absolutely the reason. I'm just saying it's the reason I'm ruling you out. Right. And so it, what's what's interesting to me about that is, so I'm a marketer, right? And I play with words in a similar way that you do, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I remember being on the train when I used to ride the TTC. Too bushy now to take the GO train. Safety. Oh, well, now they got Wi-Fi in the subway, but that, that wasn't a thing until recently. Yeah. Uh, so I remember reading a, a poster on the subway train, and it said, meeting the right person can change your life. Hmm. Now, as a marketer, I'd be like, there's just one word change I would make there. I would change can into will. Meeting the right person will change your life. Mm-hmm. That's my POV. And the reason why I bring that up, and I think it's valid to this conversation, because I personally believe, I personally believe that a lot of us cheat ourselves out of opportunities on very minimal information. I've met people that, you know, they've come across each other, you know, very quickly, quick exchanges. And then they finally get the chance to know each other for whatever reason and be like, I didn't know you were like this. I didn't know you did. I, I didn't know. Like, how we, you mean we could have been dating like two <laughs> years ago? Like, what, what? What, like, you know what I mean? I've heard this conversation numerous times from numerous people. And, and, that, and that's my only that's my only perspective is, yes, you have your kind of immediate checkboxes where you can, you know, eliminate people. But then the other side of it is, are you really validating your decision on the best amount of information? Or are we only just looking at what's readily available and it's fair like listen there's a lot of options out there so i i get that but that's Mm -hmm. just kind of my pov and my perspective and i get that and i want to be very clear 
to mm-hmm. the women who are like, I see him, I like him, I want him, I got him. Girl, more power to you. This mm-hmm. is not a, this is not. I'm a firm believer that your dating standard is your dating standard. Facts. What I like, what I do, what I expect, what I tolerate, that's mine. What I'm not willing to do is not a reflection on what I think other people shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. There's a woman out there who walks into the room, immediately sees the man she wants, walks up to him, gives him her number, and walks off. I think that's fantastic that that she has such a clear understanding of what works for her, and she will do it. That's mm. not for me, right? But to the point, I, I get the idea that you might miss a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. But if you lived your whole life thinking about the good opportunities you missed, you wouldn't live at all. Sure enough. I I hear you. On the flip side, (laughs) I'll say (laughs) on the flip side, I would say, you know, the Wayne Gretzky Gretzky, uh, quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Now, does that mean you should shoot at everything? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, you know, the universe is a big place. And I think a lot of times, you know, what's that old anecdote story where there was a flood, guy's on the roof, he's praying to God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a boat that comes by, this helicopter. Right. And so I feel like, especially in our community as black people, I often hear the narrative there's not enough good black brothers in the community. I've heard it my whole entire life. Okay. Heard it. Right. And so I would just think that, you know, because there's not, quote unquote, a lot of good black brothers in the community or available, that when you see something you like, you would want to shoot your shot because the other way hasn't really been working at scale. Yeah, that's and, very fair. And it feels a little bit like luck. Right. So I would just feel like you'd want to take things more into your control. That's just me and my man logic. Like, why wouldn't you want to just, <laughs> That's you know, very much man logic. <laughs> taking it into your control. Why not? Like, go get them. <laughs> I do respect that perspective a lot, which is yeah. why I'm all for women who, who want to take that approach. Yeah. Do it. You know, it, it makes sense in its own right. Guys, I'm going to work on Talia. I'm going to get her to do this. I'll report back to you guys with an update. All right. <laughs> <Good> luck. <laughs> like, good luck. Not happening. Um, but on that note, I know in a prior, a prior conversation, you talked about social cues and you said men suck pretty much at recognizing social cues from women. So to all the guys and men that listen to this podcast, Talia, can you please educate what are social cues? This feels dangerous. This feels like I'm I'm gonna get some man DMing me like I listened to what you said and I got slapped in the face. Okay, we'll we'll say this. We'll give it warning. Not applicable to all women. Okay. There's, all women. there's a warning label right there. Also, you know, know yourself. Yeah, d- different strokes for different folks know, too, right? Know where you're shooting. Know whether you can shoot from half court or not. You know, right? They're, ooh, good sports analogy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, So what are those social cues that, that women are giving to men that could potentially, there's another safe word, mean that they are interested in being courted? So 
I'm so sorry to the girls. I'm about to give out one of our little secrets. Mm. We know when men are looking at us. Really? All are not. So it's not just a double look? No, we can feel the eyeballs burning into whatever part of us you're looking at. We know. So if we're not looking back, it's very likely on purpose. Which Mm. means if every time you look at her, your eyes make four, as we say in Barbados. Go. Shoot go. Your shot. We get three of those. Go. If you're mm-hmm. getting prolonged eye contact, because obviously there's moments where it's like she's glancing across the space and you're glancing across the space and your eyes meet. But if she stops and she locks, and I know that works because I've done it. Mm-hmm. I have eyeballed a man as he crossed the room and eyeballed him as he crossed the back. And the third time he crossed the room, he was standing in front of me because women don't stare at you. Right. <laughs> we're interested in you. Mm -hmm. you know eye contact clear sign if you're looking at her and she smiles especially i can only speak for my black girls because you know our faces are very expressive Mm -hmm. and we're very quick to be like Mm -hmm. turn to our friends why is he looking at me if she smiles at you that's a good sign like Mm -hmm. and you can tell the difference like i know men often will say oh well i couldn't read there's a difference between the grimace, like this man is staring at me and I'm trying to appear friendly so he doesn't, you know, murder me when I leave this place and yeah. a friendly smile. Like, I refuse to believe that men are incapable of telling the difference. Mm-hmm. So if you're getting a friendly smile, anything that indicates that she is engaging with you non-verbally is usually a good sign. Mm. So, you know, gather up your courage and wow. go and say hello. So we got it. Uh, on contact, guys, fellas, if you're listening. Right. So there's eye contact. And then you said a smile, like, Mm -hmm. or some type of positive facial expression. Yeah. Like if she waves, please God. (laughs) Like if you get the little fingers, she's not showing off her nails. She's signaling. Right. No, I love that. I love that. Um, And I feel like, listen, it's, it's, I think most guys, they do know that, but courage, confidence Mm -hmm. might be a part of it. Um, and also, like, you know, everyone has their triggers. Yeah, for sure. And some some, some women, they they kind of do what, you know, in the U.S. you call, like, the okie doke. Like, they, they can present like they're interested, but they're just friendly. Right. And this and, is very true. And right? I am, and you can, I'm very friendly. And it's not, it's not, I'm not okie doking. I'm just friendly, but <laughs> right. super eager. Right. But, I want to I want to offer a caveat to all mm-hmm. of this and it mm-hmm. actually is to women. I know that we have been taught that playing hard to get is cute and being coy is a great flirtation practice, but if we're asking men to take us at our word, then we need to operate at our word. So if you are interested, then be interested. Don't play coy because we're asking men to to you know respect consent and when you say no no means no then don't say no if you don't mean no and then be like oh why did he go away because you said no sis Mm. you know i think as much as we're asking men to change the way that they interact with us we need to make sure that our behavior is that conducive to that change Mm. wow a little accountability since you know men like accountability that it made me actually think of a a social media post that i saw it was funny and it was like guys it was like um it was like they're they're doing a play on a reality show where it was like um fair factor 
Mm. And the guy brings in a suitcase and there's two women in front of it. It's the word accountability. <laughs> and they're just like running away from it. They're like, I can't do it. I can't. Crawled all the way up to the table and then collapsed <laughs> to the floor. <laughs> that was funny to me. Um, so, yeah. Tulio, um, if you could go back in time mm. and talk to a younger version of yourself, what would you say? I would tell the younger version of myself that you do not have to harm yourself to love other people. Mm. That there are healthy, loving spaces where you can love somebody and have that reciprocated and you don't have to make all the sacrifices. Mm. And everyone is going to hear that in a relationship context, but I also mean that in, in a family general. context as well. Wow. Wow. So, and lastly, if you could only give one piece of advice, one piece of advice to someone going through a breakup from a long-term relationship or a divorce, what would it be? Be really gentle with yourself because your whole life just got turned upside down and and people don't like to think of it that way because they're like oh it's just a relationship it shouldn't be but you're grieving so many losses not just the loss of that relationship but the loss of everything you promised each other the loss of everything you planned to do the loss of the future that you had imagined and you are allowed to grieve that and we know that grief for more uncomplicated losses like death um we know that it's not a straight line that mm. it's very up and down and some days are better than others. And the grief of, of leaving a relationship, even a relationship that you know you should have left, that you are better off for having left, you will still have to go through that grief. And so you need to be very gentle in giving yourself space to feel those feelings and not judging yourself for how long it takes or what it looks like or what you have to do to be okay. And I am saying all of this to myself as much as to anybody else because I'm three years out and there's still things that I'm working through. There are still feelings that I'm processing, you know, and, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm not better. It doesn't mean that I'm not healing. It just means that it's a process. It takes time. Right. And I think that learning never stops. Probably not. That involving never stops because I, I remember seeing online a married couple and they've been married for like a very long time, over 30 years. Wow. And they still said they're learning things about each other. Of course. Because we're always changing too, right? So right. who we are today isn't who we are going to be in 10 years, which means I now have to learn what my person is and right. how we change and why they change in those ways and who they want to become and who, how I have to meet that. Right, right. No, very powerful. Um, and so, Talia, I usually end with rapid fire questions. It's where I ask you a quick question. You give me the first answer thought that comes to you okay. in your mind. Okay. So here's my first one. These are meant to be fun, silly, exciting. Cheesecake factory. Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you accept that you would accept that as your first date. Hundred percent. Mm. And what are your thoughts, really quickly, on 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 that list? That's circulating on social media. I have lots of thoughts. Is, is, is that generally a good list? 
I don't think so. I don't think that any such list is going to make sense because what I would do and what Susie down the street will do are two very different things. And I think that right. is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of people's ideas, but it's not representative of any one woman. Like for mm-hmm. me, there's six things on that list that I would do. Right. But they're not the six that a lot of people expect them to be. Right. And I have a good reason for all of the others that I wouldn't do. Understood. Every woman who interacts with that list is going to have that same experience. Yeah, no, fair point. Very good point. Uh, what's a common mistake you believe men make about women? Not thinking about how we navigate the world in terms of safety. Mm, yes. Because we have that as an advantage. Mm-hmm. So things like, oh, um, let's go hiking in the woods on a first date. Absolutely not, sir. Because mm. I don't know you. You're fair. probably not a serial killer, but I don't know that. Fair point. Valid, valid. And my last one, what's a quote or a mantra that you currently live by? So, hmm. I think, and this is a little cliche and a little bit um, well-known, but Still I Rise has been Mm -hmm. carrying me through. You know, no matter what life throws at me, Still I Rise. Mm -hmm. And as long as you rise, you can keep going. So, Right. I love it. I love it. Well, Talia, this has been a beautiful conversation. I definitely got yeah. something from it. And I know my listeners, viewers, have probably will get something from this by the time they hear this. Awesome. So for the people that want to perhaps hire you for your writing services or collaborate with you in some aspect or even just follow you because you put out some pretty interesting content online. Um, what is the best way for them to do so? So on the business end, you can visit my website, wordcountcreative.com. If you're interested in hearing me chatter or write or otherwise discuss things like this, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Talia Leacock. Amazing. Well, guys, that concludes this episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem. As many of you guys know, I usually like to end off by saying uh, this. Um, If you just want to impress people, you know, talk about all the shiny things you have in your household, the accolades, the awards, yada, yada, yada. But if you really want to have an impact on someone else's life, talk about those those down periods, Mm -hmm. those failures, uh, those moments where you experience some form of loss, but most importantly, what you learn from those experiences. That's how you really move the needle in someone else's life. So with that being said, Talia and myself are out. Peace and love. Until the next time. And remember to check us out on the Alive Podcast Network. Peace. Later. Later.